Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. On August 18th, 2020, we'll celebrate the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which finally granted women the right to vote. In honor of that historic anniversary, we're going to take you back to the 18th century for a look at women in early America. On today's show, we bring you the audio version of our recent annual Martha Washington Lecture, Now, ordinarily, we would have had this event at the Washington Library in March as part of Women's History Month. Well, the COVID pandemic torpedoed that plan, so in late June, we presented it as a live stream, and we're delighted to bring it to you via the podcast now as the 19th Amendment's anniversary approaches. We were very fortunate to have four distinguished scholars join us for a discussion about Mary Ball Washington, George Washington's mother. In the past, Mary Ball has been described as a cold, even cruel woman who showed little affection toward her famous son. But as our guests today make clear, and as we historians like to say, the past is a whole lot more complicated. We were lucky to have Karen Wolf serve as guest moderator for this lecture. You may remember Wolf from my conversation with her on the power and practice of genealogy in early America. She is executive director of the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture at the College of William and Mary, and the author of Not All Wives, Women of Colonial Philadelphia. She was joined on the virtual stage by Martha Saxton, author of The Widow Washington, The Life of Mary Washington, which is a finalist for the 2020 George Washington Book Prize, Craig Shirley, author of Mary Ball Washington, The Untold Story of George Washington's Mother, and Charlene Boyer-Lewis, author of Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte, An American Aristocrat in the Early Republic. Now, as with all things live stream, the unexpected might happen. So just be aware that we did lose Shirley from the broadcast for just a few seconds, but at least we didn't have a guest appearance by somebody's cat, as so often happens these days. Just a reminder that if you take our podcast survey, you might win a free book. You can find out by going to mountainburnin.org slash podcast. I hope you enjoy this program. Good evening, everyone. My name is Kevin Butterfield. I'm the executive director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon, commonly known as the Washington Library. And we have an annual event uh, that we're finally getting around to this year. We were all set to hold it in March before a closure uh, forced us to delay uh, to this night, uh, where we are going to have our annual Martha Washington Lecture sponsored by the Richard S. Reynolds Foundation. Uh, We're thrilled to have this opportunity to bring together some of the most important scholarship on the mother of George Washington, Mary Ball Washington. Uh, This popular event was set up uh, some time ago with the the name the Martha Washington Lecture to help us understand the world, the times, the experiences of Martha Washington and other women of the 18th century. Uh, One of those women is, of course, uh, Mary Ball Washington. Uh, the library has hosted this event in Women's History Month, um, the month of March, uh, for years. Uh, but because of the closure, here we are tonight. Uh, I do want to mention a couple of things. Uh, one important thing I think everyone in the audience probably knows by now, but I, I can't uh, say it too many times, Mount Vernon is open. Uh, we have opened uh, to audiences, uh, to, to visitors, I should say, uh, to come to Mount Vernon. Uh, and you have an opportunity to come uh, stroll the grounds, uh, to see the museum and the education center. Uh, Quite soon, we'll be able to open the mansion, but that's not ready yet because of uh, particular challenges in making that a safe space for visitors. Uh, But please, come visit Mount Vernon and continue to support Mount Vernon in that way. Another thing I'll mention is an upcoming event on July 8th, uh, because that is just coming right up, right around the corner. Our July Ford Evening Book Talk uh, will feature uh, Judge Douglas Ginsburg, uh, who is the host and creator of a recent PBS miniseries on the Constitution. 
but he'll be interviewed by uh, someone who's uh, no less important and no less notable in his own right, uh, philanthropist David Rubenstein. Uh, please join us for that conversation with Judge Ginsburg and David Rubenstein uh, so that we can learn more about his exploration of our Constitution. Uh, tonight's event is going to involve three panelists that I won't uh, describe to you, uh, but in fact, I do want to introduce our guest and moderator, uh, Dr. Karen Wolf, uh, who is a historian of early America and also the director of the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture, professor of history at William and Mary, and a recent Washington Library <laughs> fellow. Uh, and she was working on her project uh, when I came to the library, uh, a project that is coming uh, um, soon, one day soon, on lineage and the history of genealogy in early America. Uh, Karen, welcome. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's delightful to be here saying hello to you from my dining room. <laughs> And where is your dining room? Are you coming to us from Williamsburg? Or from I'm, I'm just around the beltway from you, I think. I'm in Rockville, Maryland right now. That's great. That's great. Well, welcome. I'm not going to uh, intrude any longer. I'd, I'd like to ask you to introduce our panelists tonight, and uh, I'll step aside, and I'm looking forward to the talks. Thanks so much. Thanks, I appreciate that. So, um, so hello to all of you and welcome to my dining room. I'm really sorry that we're not together in person for this conversation about a really interesting person, but also about some of the most important and challenging issues in early American history. I want to thank Mount Vernon for bringing us together. Um, my family has loved visiting Mount Vernon for many decades, but to my mind, you might not be surprised to know that I think one of the lasting contributions to our civic culture that Mount Vernon has been making is in supporting research. New information, new questions, new perspectives on the critical early American past are not only healthy, but really essential for our nation. And those contributions uh, to fresh exhibits and interpretation you see at the site but also in books like those we're talking about this evening. So in the Martha Washington lecture series, we're grappling with some core issues. How do we tell the histories of people who are not George Washington, people who were not super well documented from this early period? All women, as we're going to talk about, are difficult to document, and certainly enslaved men and women who are key presences in the lives of all the Washingtons, as the Washingtons were key in their lives, are elusive. But this is such important history. So I'm going to start with just some quick context for everyone about Mary Ball Washington and the structure of 18th century Virginia before I introduce tonight's panel. Mary Ball Washington is known to all of us as the mother of George Washington. Tonight, we're going to let George be a minor character in the life of a woman who lived almost the whole of the 18th century. Born in 1708 to a wealthy and connected family on Virginia's northern neck, she married in 1731 into another wealthy and connected family, was widowed in 1743, and then died in 1789. As Mary Ball, and then Mary Ball Washington, she enslaved men, women, and children, the first of whom she inherited when she was just three years old when her father died, three men named Tom, Joe, and Jack. In all the places that she and her family lived, the population was 40 to 50 percent enslaved people by the mid-18th century. She was married for 12 years to George Washington's father, and she bore six children, five of whom lived past infancy, and the eldest of whom, of course, became the first president. She managed a nearly 300-acre estate for more than three decades, and she wasn't keen to leave it even when she was elderly, but she did eventually, and she lived for the last 17 years of her long life in Fredericksburg, Virginia, then, as now, quite a bustling town. So that's just a start. For the rich details and meaning and the opportunities of exploring them for our better understanding of the early American past, we're turning to a distinguished panel. 
and perhaps giving my last name, you can guess why I'm always in favor of introducing people in reverse alphabetical order. So Craig Shirley um, had a long career in politics and is the author of multiple books focused on the 20th century, including four bestsellers about Ronald Reagan, a political biography of Newt Gingrich's early career, and December 1941, a New York Times bestseller about the events and attack on Pearl Harbor. And most recently, he published Mary Ball Washington, The Untold Story of George Washington's Mother with Harper in 2019. I see that Craig has come back to the best century, the 18th century now. Martha Saxton is Professor Emerita of History and Women's Studies at Amherst College, the author of Being Good, Women's Moral Values in Early America, and co-author of the seventh edition of Interpretations of American History. I mention that because many graduate students in American history have read that volume. She's held many fellowships, most recently was the Coleman Fellow at the New York Public Library, and she's just published The Widow Washington, The Life of Mary Washington with Farrah Strauss, and she's already won an award, though I'm not sure that that's public knowledge. Maybe she'll tell us that. Last but certainly not least, my dear friend Charlene Boyer-Lewis, who is professor of history at Kalamazoo College, the author of Ladies and Gentlemen on Display, Planter Society at the Virginia Springs, 1790 to 1860, and Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte, an American aristocrat in the early republic. And she's currently writing a book about Margaret Ship and Arnold that I promise you will be fantastic and important. She's also the co-editor of a volume of essays on women in George Washington's world, and she's one of the co-editors of the Jeffersonian America series at UVA Press. So this is the moment traditionally when we would applaud our panelists and welcome them and thank them for joining us this evening. So I'm going to start actually with Craig, um, who, you know, as I said, we welcome you back to the best century of inquiry, Craig, um, the 18th century. But I want to ask you, particularly because you've been a historian of later eras, one thing that's super interesting to me about your book is that you talk about the history and tradition of Mary Ball Washington biographies. That is, you begin your volume not in the 18th century, but in talking about the long impact of the 18th century and the legacy and the tradition of the way people have written about her. Could you talk with us a little bit about that? Sure, uh, Karen, thank you very much. And I wanna thank everybody at Mount Vernon for inviting me to be with you tonight. Um, it, it, I guess the, the place to start, uh, why I got interested, I always wanted to do a, a, a biography of George Washington, but that, that fishing hole had been pretty well fished out, although there's always new scholarship on Washington opening up. but. Uh, I, I live in, actually I live in, speaking of the 18th century, I live in a house that was built in 1730 down here in rural Virginia. And I've always had a fascination with Washington. I have uh, probably two favorite presidents, Ronald Reagan and George Washington, and they, they remain today very fascinating for me because of their multiple careers and multiple interests and multiple talents. Um, but it occurred to me as I, as I was, we actually attend uh, the Episcopal Church here in uh, the northern neck of Virginia, where the Ball family attended, a uh, 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 little Washington, a little, um, oh, <laughs> I can't think of the name of it now. Um, but in the Ball family, it's all buried in the uh, graveyard there. And so we, I, I got very interested in it, and I started to probe, and I found out that really, until Martha's book came out, and then my book, uh, was that the scholarship on Mary Ball Washington had been very, very thin, and what was out there wasn't frankly very good. There was a period after she passed away and until about 1860 uh, where she was treated as like as if she was the uh, Mary 
the mother of Jesus, uh, or she was a saintly figure. Or she was very, she was dealt with very, very delicately. And then the period after the Civil War, when realism began, began to take hold in American writing with the Red Badge of Courage and Melville and other things like that, she took on a much harder cast. She went from being, as I say, from being June Cleaver to Joan Crawford. Uh, and the fact of the matter was, was that both, they, they were, neither was true and both was true. But the, the truth was, some, was much more nuanced. It was someplace in the middle. And when I, when, I got in, when I got into the scholarship, when I got into the research, I found out that this was a very uh, talented woman. Uh, even one recent biographer, who was a very good biographer of, uh, of Washington, uh, said she was unlettered uh, countrywoman. Well, actually, she was, uh, she, was, she was a lettered person. She had a very fine hand and wrote very good letters, very literate letters. Uh, and she also lived in not the country. I mean, she, most of her life was in Fredericksburg, which is a booming metropolis in, in you know, the 1750s, 1760s. So what emerged for me was is that uh, a, a much more sophisticated woman and a woman that really history had not been very kind to. And I think that between Martha and myself, I think we started to address the idea that, that she needs to be looked at more closely. Uh, she died, George, as you mentioned, uh, George's father died when he was, uh, when he was only 12 years old. Uh, and, and, it, and it occurred to me uh, that he didn't. He did. He had an older stepbrother, Lawrence, but he was never around really all that much, and there weren't really any strong male figures. He had two tutors uh, in his lifetime, but there weren't any strong male figures in his life. And where did Washington achieve all these qualities that we associated with him of bravery and integrity and faith and honor and all those things? It had to come from somebody, and I think that I, I think that it's, it, the correct conclusion is that all these qualities, in fact, came from his mother. So that makes her not just because she had George Washington, but because how she raised George Washington makes her maybe the most important woman in the history of the American Republic. Thanks so much. That's so, uh, that's a really interesting um, reflection. I am sure that the people in Fredericksburg would prefer your bustling, uh, your booming metropolis description to my bustling town description. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly it was, it was a lively place in the 18th century, and it was um, certainly more dominant in the area than I think we may, we may have thought. Um, I want to ask you to just, just a quick follow-up here about, um, about Mary Ball Washington and how people have interpreted her as a mother over time. Yeah. I mean, you said she goes from being June Cleaver to Joan Crawford, a 20th century kind of visual media references there. Um, but you're also talking about a much longer period from the 19th century into the late 20th century, where um, I'm wondering if you're thinking this is really because people are interpreting motherhood differently and kind of popular conceptions of women and women's roles differently as they're interpreting Mary Washington. I don't think there's anything, I don't think there's any doubt about that, Karen. I think that, that we all, all of us as historians and scholars, uh, channel modern sensibilities mm -hmm. into our look backwards uh, mm -hmm. at, at and we're not we're not guilty of we're not guilty of presentism we're not mm -hmm. judging them by the morals and standards uh, and uh, qualities of today we're not doing that but we are taking a closer look at at the men and women uh, that, that were in the past and mm -hmm. and trying to see them and that's what I really tried to do was is that I tried to imagine 
what it would be like. And, and I got a lot of help actually from my wife, Serene, and, and my mother, who both did a lot of research on my book. But I wanted to get a woman's perspective. What was it like to be a, a, a single woman raising six children, then five children? Mm-hmm. In, uh, in a century that was not very hospitable to, to women. You know, they as, you know, we obviously didn't have the vote, but women couldn't even own property. Uh, is that mm-hmm. their, her job and all women's job was to inherit, was to take the property that would their deceased husband had passed along to them. And then their job was to pass it along to their eldest son when he reached the age of majority. So it, it's, a, it's a very, very difficult century for women. So she, to, to do what she had to do to, to raise the children, who all were, you know, pretty respectable citizens, obviously one being the most respectable citizen in possibly the history of the American Republic. Uh, but where did she, so she had to have done something right, and maybe a lot of things right, to have uh, raised her children under such difficult circumstances and to produce uh, a, a man who was, you know, as it was described when he passed away, first in the war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that a lot. And actually, you've just um, served us up here, I think, for me to ask Martha a question um, about widowhood. Um, if we can switch over here. I want to just note that um, for all uh, everybody watching that Martha has been experiencing some laryngitis. So her daughter, Josephine Ferrarelli, um, is going to read some of her responses for us. And then Martha will catch up with the, with the follow-up. Um, so thanks, Josephine. We all, we all appreciate that a lot. And actually, this is very suitable, right? I mean, there's a kind of mother-daughter thing happening here, which seems really appropriate. Um, so I wanted to just start out by asking Martha um, via Josephine here, here, um, to tell us a little bit more about something that Craig touched on, which is Martha Ball Washington's um, position as a widow, an elite woman, and a slave owner, and how that could help us to understand her and the world she lived in. Give us a little bit of context for that, if you would. Um, I should say that I've written out something so that my daughter could read it. So it's a little bit formal, but I think it answers your question. If we go on too long, or if my daughter goes on too long with my text, just tell us to stop. All right. Telling the story of Mary Ball as a widow, a slave owner, and a member of the gentry opens a wide-ranging discussion of 18th century Virginia, including class slavery, white women's sometimes contradictory roles, and the way the legal system shaped white male supremacy. Her position as an elite white widow gives us a view onto her privilege and her lack of fundamental rights. Mary's decision to stay unmarried after the death of her husband placed her in a category of women with special freedoms and special legal and customary liabilities. Virginia law permitted widows, unlike wives, to own property, but Virginia laws and the judiciary worked to keep women's ownership of land both exceptional and temporary. In Mary's case, Augustine's will left his two best plantations to his son by his first marriage and divided up the rest of the land among his and Mary's sons. He left a small amount of money to his and Mary's daughter, Betty. He left Mary the right to use the house and land where she lived only until George came of age. Augustine left left her approximately the same number of enslaved people whom she had brought to the marriage and stipulated that if she felt the need for more, they would come from among people designated for her children. 
Augustine's will was stingy with her and set her at odds with her children, but was in line with the legal goal of keeping land away from women and trying to reduce property-owning widows to dependency, which was considered the natural condition for women. These legal practices created the conditions for widespread friction between mothers and their firstborn sons. Mary stayed at the family farm after George's coming of age because he was already ensconced at Mount Vernon, and she had failed to find the means to build herself a home. Over the years, the requests for small sums of money to meet her expenses on this relatively infertile property irked him until he finally took the farm from her, thinking to improve it and make the profit uh, he believed was due him. As it happened, he failed in that endeavor. So we'll never know why Mary remained single, but she had a model for independence in the memory of her mother's widowhood between the time young Mary was about six till she was 12. She watched her mother run their farm, litigate to recover property, and make her own decisions. Mary may also not have wanted more children. Another important factor was Augustine's provision in his will that if she remarried, and if her second husband tampered with the children's legacies, she would lose guardianship of them. As a child, Augustine had experienced guardians fighting over his and his brother's legacies, so he wanted to prevent this not uncommon occurrence. From Mary's standpoint, it would have been difficult to be sure that any prospective uh, suitor might not have designs on her children's property, and she was not going to risk control over her children. Mary's experience as a slave owner over the course of much of the 18th century offers glimpses of the unsettling and unsettled intimacy slaveholders and enslaved people, as well um, between <laughs> the intimacy of slaveholders and enslaved people, as well as suggesting some changes as the institution developed over that time. Mary became the owner of two young enslaved boys and a man at age three when her wealthy father died. The role of slave owner inevitably blunted her empathy and shaped her sense of command and her belief in the necessity of slavery. She owned children about her age, who were probably occasionally her playmates, but whatever the games, she would win. She grew up on a small farm where enslaved and free lived close together, and her stepfather and mother personally forced work out of their captives. When Mary's stepfather died, her mother took over, eventually hiring an overseer, but still controlling the farm and the enslaved workers. Mary was born in a period when a very high number of kidnapped Africans were entering Virginia, speaking foreign languages, some with ritual scars, bewildered, frightened, and rebellious. Mary's financial guardian and neighbor, George Eskridge, was among the legislators writing the early 18th century laws giving owners as complete control over the lives of Africans as possible. Mary's father's family litigated over the children and unborn, and unborn children of young enslaved women. Her mother's will promised Mary an enslaved woman. She would, uh, she would be valuable, all, oh, sorry, she would be more valuable, although less costly than an enslaved man. Mary would have known this because women worked in the field as well as the house and produced children that their owners could work or sell. Both Mary's early ownership of bondmen and boys and her membership in that eight, uh, early 18th century generation helped make her an utterly unrepentant slave owner. A family story has her whipping and reviling an enslaved boy who mishandled her carriage. During the revolution, she asked George to borrow the enslaved Priscilla who worked at Mount Vernon. George delayed because Priscilla pleaded not to be separated from her partner, but Mary persisted and got her way. 
In her will, she separated enslaved family members recklessly. As a woman, but later and more urgently as a widow, Mary had to demonstrate her authority and strength before her slaves and her overseers. Perceived weakness could, could lead to resistance. Statistics show that cases of infractions by enslaved people uh, owned by widows showed up more often in the courts than those owned by men. By the time Mary was an old woman, the myth was developing that women slave owners did not use violence. Martha Washington, for example, was protected by George's rule at Mount Vernon that enslaved people could not complain to her of an, over, of an overseer's discipline. The prevailing, ideologic, uh, prevailing ideology of sensibility, along with the distances wealthy planters would increasingly create between plantation mistresses and the actual day-to-day -day extraction of work from laborers, left Mary, as a woman, vulnerable to the criticism of unusual cruelty as if slave owning could be, at bottom, anything else. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, Martha, and thank you, Josephine, too. That's actually really helpful context. I think um, you've done, you've put two things together there. Uh, Mary Ball Washington's experience as a widow, and we know how the law of Virgi in Virginia um, disempowered women, but then also actually put widows in a slightly more, that is, free and wealthy women, uh, widows in a slightly more powerful position. And also then vis-a-vis, -vis, of course, slavery. Um, so Mary Ball Washington is a very interesting figure. She is both extremely powerful in some contexts and not at all powerful in others. Um, I'm gonna ask uh, Charlene to come in on this next, um, next question, but when we come back to you um, in the second round, Martha, one of the things I'm gonna ask you about um, is just to give us a reminder about what coverture actually meant, because that law of coverture that which confines women's property owning, I think is really crucial for us to understand. You mentioned that, Craig mentions that as well. And since we're talking about law which confines women and law, of course, which constrains enslaved people, I think it's important to understand that. So we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, Charlene, I wanted to bring you in just to talk about how hard it is to write biography of any women in this period. And you're writing, well, you've published a book about one quite famous woman um, and uh, are writing another book about another very famous woman. But even so, it's really a challenge. Why, why is it so hard to write biographies of women? You're right, exactly. And I think there are multiple reasons why there are challenges and there are multiple challenges as well. Um, I t I've taken the easy way out, right? I, I, I choose women who, who have left a good record behind, at least Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte did, less so Margaret Arnold, um, women who would have been written about in newspapers and by other historians, um, people who try to do some but he like Mary Ball Washington either. She's a little more elusive. Um, but the challenges come from the time period when you're looking at these women and then also how people have kept sources and how archives have worked, um, which have been always to really place women with men. So when you look at the 18th century and the early 19th century, Women are kind of thought of as kind of generalizations, not as individuals themselves. They don't have public identities. Um, they're really only known as whether they're 
the mother of somebody, the wife of somebody, the daughter of somebody. So they're known by the men to whom they're attached. And I think because of that, right, because women didn't have these public identities, because women weren't really seen as specific individuals, but as kind of a gen generic general category, they got lost in the records. Um, they weren't written about as much. Um, and they're, you know, when you look at a, when you look at the beginning of the country and you look at the census, you know, it's men's names who are on there first and it's men who are the heads of the households. Uh, it's really hard to find women. Um, so, one of the challenges to do biography of women is you have to start sifting through all the, the traditional documents and try to find women where they can. When you go to an archive, still in many archives, the papers are known by the man's name, right? The Benedict Arnold papers. And so I have to try and find Margaret Arnold through Benedict Arnold's papers. Um, or they're known by their father's names, right? Or Or they're just kind of put into one folder as kind of this family papers, and that's where all the women's papers are. So you have to sift. Same thing when you're looking through newspapers, right? You have to sift and search for where these women are and, and what, you know, what key terms do you use? Um, because they're not always going to be known as Margaret Arnold or as Elizabeth Bonaparte. They're much harder to find than men. Um, it also means, and, and this is one thing why I like to write uh, biographies about women, is that we get to get creative. Because once you decide to write about a woman and because they're more elusive and they're more difficult to write about, this is where you can start thinking about sources in different ways. So it's not just reading between the lines through traditional sources like letters, um, but it's thinking about architecture and spaces that women inhabited laundries and kitchens and bedrooms and orchards. And so how can we bring that in and help us tell our story? And it's a, you know, a way that you can think about material culture when you look at jewelry that a woman owned or dishes that a woman used, um, you know, or a piece of clothing can tell us an immense amount and let us write the story um, in a more full, rich way, even though the sources that are there aren't as rich for somebody like George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, right? And so what I think we need to understand is when you do biography and you think about the challenges is that we're complex figures. It seems simplistic for me to say so, but women, especially who are known by the men in their lives, like Mary Bell Washington, Mary Ball Washington, get simplified and just known as the mother of the father, right? Or as Peggy Arnold, who I'm writing about now, gets known as the traitor's wife. But they're very complex figures. They're not just somebody's mother, somebody's wife, somebody's daughter. They're slaveholders. They're writers. They're female politicians. They're shopkeepers. They're artists, right? They're, they're women who are full of complexity. And the challenge of the biographer is to break through those traditional thinking of women as mothers, wives, and daughters, and bust that open and and find uh, and think about sources in creative ways to get a fuller, richer picture of women. So it's harder history to write. Um, it's more challenging history to write. It's frustrating sometimes, especially when you're looking for um, women of the lower classes and certainly women of color where the records almost don't exist. It's, it's, it's frustrating. It can produce a lot of anger. My students get angry when they can't find sources about the women they're interested in. But there's lots of 
reward to try and, and resurrect these women as fully complex individuals that they were. Thank you. That is that is really great. I love your emphasis on the challenge and the creativity involved both. Um, and, you know, I guess it really underscores um, a key point, especially when uh, we're trying to write about enslaved women, for example, who are really known to us almost primarily um, by their relationship to someone who enslaved them. And you think about the incredible achievement of someone like Erica Dunbar writing that incredible biography of Ona Judge and letting her be an individual in her own right and writing her life when we really only have two points of access to her individual voice. Um, you know, interviews that she gave in the mid-19th century describing what happened when she uh, ran away from the Washingtons. Um, so, it, yeah, I think you make such an important point there about seeing women as individuals and not just in their relationship to other to other people. So, so thank you a lot. Um, I want to go back to this question with Martha about um, about uh, coverture and just ask you, Martha. I want to ask you um, two things, although um, I want to ask you to be brief about them. But the, the first one is about um, is about coverture. And if you could just very quickly, I know your voice is strained here, and I'm asking you something. I'm giving you a curveball here. But if you could just give us a succinct description of what the law of coverture is. Um, and how it disempowers women, um, of, that is elite women, free women, but how it empowers women of property when they are not married. If you could just give us that little snippet, I think that could be super helpful. Well, coverture, when you marry, you lose your legal identity. You say, as a woman, you become subsumed in the identity of your husband. So nothing that you own, nothing that you produce, including your children, are yours. If you this is not true before marriage. Before marriage, you're presumably dependent on your father, and your father can arrange and pass on things to you legally and make you the owner of property. Um, when you're a widow, the same thing happens. You can, you can own things in your own right. Um, so, so coverture essentially um, wipes out your individual um, Existence, your legal existence, you can't testify in court, um, all of those things. And widowhood restores many of those, um, many of those abilities that, that, um, that men have. Yeah. Is that so it's, yeah, that's so helpful. I think it's, it's interesting for us to think about someone like Mary Ball Washington, um, who, even though she's living in this very challenging time, when she's widowed, she has more legal capacity than when she's married. Um, and although we know women do remarry, we know that also when women are widowed, they remarry much less quickly and less frequently than men do. That is, men who, whose wives pass away marry more quickly, <laughs> again, right. than, than women do. And we can't, we can't, I think, assume that that means that she was in some kind of modern feminist sense claiming her authority. As a, but, but it may be that the kind of capacity she had as a widow suited her in some way. Do you think that's fair? Absolutely, I think I think she had a model in her mother. She saw that mm -hmm. she saw the difference in her mother's life between widowhood and and married status. She, it's not clear to me that she enjoyed her mother very much. She never named a child after her, but she certainly mm -hmm. admired her strength mm -hmm. and her abilities. She also mm -hmm. um, it meant that she would not have to have any more children if she didn't remarry, which was yeah. she'd had six. Um, yeah. She may not have wanted to spend her life producing more children, nursing, and, and doing all of that. 
women at the yeah. time, 18th century women at the time, wrote about that and as a real reason for not wanting to, to marry again. She also would have possibly lost control, if she married again, of the property that she did still had, um, that that she had sort of uh, in a temporary status from her husband, but also property that she had long-term from her father. So there were many risks, yeah. and um, yeah. she was used to, you know, going her own, going her own way, and I think she preferred it. Yeah, yeah. thank you. That's. Um, I want to ask you to just um, also mention very briefly for us. Um, again, all of these subjects are big ones and compelling ones, but um, an interesting thing that you bring to your book and that Craig mentioned as well is the fact that um, that she reads. Um, and that there are things we can know about her from her books and from reading. So I wondered if you could just very briefly talk about um, about what we can think about Mary Ball Washington as a as a reader. I actually wrote a page about page and a half about that, which my daughter will read if uh, that's okay. Is that okay? We're sorry. I said I wrote a page and a half about that that Josephine could read. Is that is that all right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Sorry. We were uh, um, I, my either my Wi-Fi was blinking or yours was blinking. One of the two. But yes, that'd be fine. Um, is the audio okay? We sound okay. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, so as Mary became an adolescent, she came into possession of John Scott's Christian Life from the Beginning, the first of a handful of devotional books that she would read and reread during her life. Uh, they were almost all written in the late 17th century by English Protestants, some Anglicans, some dissenters, all helpful to Mary, who was, uh, whose early loss of her parents left her in need of both comfort and guidance. Many lessons tended to focus on how to accept loss, the loss of health, fortune, or beloved people, by studying to understand God's will and purposes. Excessive unhappiness and complaining challenged God's all-knowing plan for the sinners in his care. This was a common belief among Anglicans in Virginia, uh, although many did not manage to comply with the stoical demeanor required. Uh, Mary had to start learning these lessons early and often. At their marriage, Augustine gave Mary the book his first wife had owned, Matthew Hale's Contemplations, Moral and Divine. She wrote her name in the flyleaf below her predecessors, and that book became her daily companion and teaching tool. She used its examples and parables to soothe herself to teach her children and her grandchildren. George Washington later came to uh, own his own copy of it. These books all taught that the prevailing social and economic hierarchies were just, and one should work hard in one's assigned position. God looked most favorably on good and faithful stewards of property. A mistress or master could insist on moral behavior if someone of a lower class could not appreciate the complexities of Christianity. For most Virginia slaveholders, these moral lessons largely included telling slaves not to steal and to be obedient. Mary's books furnished her brain with aphorisms and rules that helped her uh, navigate distress and pain. Unlike her wealthier and more leisured contemporaries, she did not read novels, which were beginning to be popular. Novels, written in a friendly, egalitarian tone to the reader, rather than as a teacher to a student, offered lessons in empathy and sympathy sharing sorrows with others' pain. Okay. Uh, Mary, because of her early losses and the precocious workload, developed little of these qualities that the 18th century elite came to value so highly as aspects of sensibility. 
Thank you. That's, I think that's really um, helpful. And um, it also actually amplifies the point you were making about her thinking about her role and her thinking about her, her sort of place in, in society. That's helpful. So I want to go back to Craig um, and talk, uh, Craig had, had mentioned this point about Mary Ball Washington as this uh, significant uh, reader that, that understanding her as a person of letters was important for your kind of sense of rewriting uh, the biography of Mary Ball Washington. I think I'm going to ask you a slightly unfair point uh, question now, Craig, if you don't mind, which is we've just been talking about um, how important it is uh, to think about women as these kind of independent people, as full individuals and not in relation to someone else. But I do want to ask you, because you do, you write about this in the book, not in the whole of the book, but, um, and you mentioned this, that um, what is the significance of understanding Mary Ball Washington for understanding George Washington? I mean, I think that's a, that's a driving question for a lot of people. And it certainly is something that you address. So can you help us to think about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, Karen, is that uh, listening to uh, Martha's, uh, daughter talk about the uh, the um, her scholarship and the book she was reading and I cover the same territory in my book but it reminded me and I'm sure and I know Martha went the same thing is this that uh, and I guess this addresses kind of the larger question too is the scholarship on Mary Ball Washington as the scholarship on probably all women of the 18th century uh, it, I, I equate it to going to the hobby store and buying a thousand piece puzzle and bringing it out and dumping it over on your table and finally, there are 300 pieces missing. Uh, and it was like that in trying to piece together. You know, my other books is that, you know, if you, if you work hard, long and hard enough and you know where to look, you could piece the story together. Is that with, with Mary, uh, is that, is again, a woman of the 18th century, it is difficult to find out these things. You know, just to illustrate is that, you know, we don't even know exactly when she was born. Uh, we don't know, you know, M M George Washington's mother, we do not know where she's buried. She's, she might be at, uh, at uh, uh, where, where she used to go to, to pray, uh, it might be there near, near a cottage in uh, Fredericksburg. But the fact is, is that nobody knows where she's buried today. But I, I think that she did from the time she was uh, raised and then the, the, the values that she grew up with, I mean, obviously, she was she. It was a difficult time, but I think also she was ultimately a very good woman, and and who interceded at times, uh, at, at important times in George's life, uh, to make sure that he you know followed the straight and narrow. When he was twelve years old, he wanted to become a, a British cabin boy. She wrote a letter to her uh, brother in London, and, let, and it came back very very quickly. Speaking of letters, and told Mary that under no circumstances could George be allowed to become a British cabin boy. There was a caste system uh, in the British Navy, as you can imagine, uh, and it was just as severe among cabin boys as it was among the uh, officers, officer of the corps, uh, and that the first was British royalty, the sons of British royalty. They got first preferences and best treatment as British cabin boys. Then British subjects. And then way, way down at the bottom, even below uh, Jamaican slaves, were Americans. And this was at a time, too. Now, the, the British Admiralty kept very, very good records. Uh, and something like one-third of all cabin boys died at sea. Uh, you know, scurvy, washed over, washed overboard, battle. And plus, you know, they were, they were in with, with, these, with the crews who were, you know, formed from impressed gangs who went through the, the brothels and bars of London 
uh, and, and you know, you got really the worst sort of people to you know enforce them to become you know uh, uh, you know stalers. You know, they they might you know be drunk in a in a bar and then wake up and all of a sudden they're hundreds of miles out at sea and they might not see England again for three or four years. And these are very very rough men. And so putting a boy in that in that circumstance with dozens of really tough disheveled, you know, tawdry, you know, uh, uh, seaman was not always very, very good. So, so George, so she interceded to make sure that George didn't, didn't, uh, uh, you know, go into the British Navy. She encouraged him in his, in his reading. She got him tutors. She uh, encouraged him to become a surveyor. Uh, he didn't, he, she didn't want him to go to the Ohio Valley, which he went to twice during the uh, French and Indian Wars. But that was by the time he was he was a man and he was striking out on his own. But even so, is that he was very uh, many times, not all the time, but he did look after her her affairs. So again, the idea of responsibility uh, to his mother uh, that he obviously learned from his mother. The, the idea of responsibility as a citizen, as a son, as a, as a human being. I mean, these the, all these qualities, as I mentioned before that we associate with George Washington had to have had to have come from her. She's the one who instilled them uh, in him. Thank you. I, I was just remembering and I was quickly trying to flip through my book to see if I could find the place where I marked it. But the problem is I turned down too many pages in your book, but it was when you wrote about her not wanting him to go to sea. I thought that was really moving, really, you know, there's a, um, that's not just, um, I think previous biographers have said, you know, she was, trying to tie him too closely to her apron strings, which of course the whole notion of apron strings is a very uh, peculiar notion. But, but you, you said, no, that's, she's, she has a much, she has a realistic sense of what that would mean um, and why she thought that wouldn't have been, you know, a positive outcome for him. I think, I think I just lost you, Craig. Ah, now you're back. Excellent. Um, no, well, back. let me, Okay, great, 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 great. Yeah, no, I thought that was really a great point that you make. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to mention, and I wondered if you could just say one more word about this, because this was really striking in your first um, comment. You described, you talked about her as brave. You said she's a brave yeah. woman and that Washington's bravery, if we think about him as a brave person, we can, we can um, source that to her. Can you just say a little bit more about that? Because I think that's quite powerful. I think actually probably all women of that century and in that time and that era uh, were, were, had to be brave uh, because it was just difficult circumstances is that mortality was very high is that, you know, children died in infancy, uh, you know, at, at high, at tremendously high percentages. Uh, is that Everything was a danger. Everything was a danger. Disease was all around you. Uh, uh, infection was, uh, you know, was, was, a, was a killer. Uh, mm -hmm. is that you died of influenza, you died of dysentery, you died of uh, rheumatic fever. You died, you know, so, and to be a single woman um, raising six children, uh, mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, I remember um, de Tocqueville uh, in uh, Democracy in America wrote about the singularity of American women, and he mm -hmm. perceived uh, that American women were different from European women. They were far more independent, they were far more uh, stood up for themselves, that they were far, all, they were all good attributes that he wrote about. And I remember reading that in, from in Democracy in America and reading it and thinking that, that 
he didn't have Mary Ball Washington in mind, but when I read it, I had Mary Ball Washington in mind. He wrote that in mm-hmm. 1832, I believe, mm-hmm. in Marx America. Uh, mm-hmm. but, it, but it struck me that one of the things that we don't look into enough is, is that the, the, the personal qualities of the people of that time is that it's not mm-hmm. just a, a measure, it's just not just uh, names and dates and places, but these were real human beings with real emotions and that, and she, and, uh, and, and especially at the end with the breast cancer, mm-hmm. uh, she had yeah. very brave in that, in that regard, mm-hmm. because I mean, she knew she was dying. George knew she was dying. There was nothing that could be done about it. Uh, it had yeah. to be terribly, terribly painful for her, but by all accounts, uh, and they're, they're they're thin, but the accounts that were made, uh, she yeah. faced the, her the, the last years very very with, with fortitude and bravery. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, one. I guess one last thing I would just notice um, is that uh, when Martha was talking about Mary as um, you know she um, she manages and enslaves a pretty decent number of people. She has a kind of commanding presence. George Washington. Yeah also has a commanding presence. That is that we, I guess we can see that in two ways. We can say that these are people who are in charge um, and that maybe that's a, that's a parallel too. Yes. Yeah. I would, yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, is that, I mean, look at his conduct during the revolutionary war, maybe George Washington's greatest achievement in the revolutionary war was not winning it. I mean, obviously winning it, but holding together a ragtag army for seven years mm. and moving them from battle to battle to battle, mm. losing more battles than he wanted, but, he, mm-hmm. but he'd happen to win the, the more important battles than he, uh, that he lost. And, and that type of fortitude and that type of bravery surely has to come from someplace. Thank you. Um, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to flip over here and uh, ask Charlene one last question before we go to some questions from the audience. There's been really a wonderful wealth of questions. I want to thank all of you for them as I've been surreptitiously reading them <laughs> as everyone's been talking and they're really great. And I want to thank you all very, very much, but we'll get to some of them here. Charlene, I wondered if you could just help us put Mary Ball Washington in the context of 18th century women in British America and, and just, can we draw any kind of larger lessons here? Craig um, gestured towards this, um, and so did so did Martha. Had some valuable insights here, but I wondered if you could frame that for us out a little bit more. Sure, uh, I think I mean Mary Ball Washington, of course, is extraordinary, and then she's also ordinary, and so I think she's illuminating on a number of points to tell us more about women in the 18th century. And first of all, is just how much she really is the 18th century. This is a woman who was pretty much born at the beginning of it and died at the end of it. Um, we don't have very many women who are kind of the 18th century, and, and Mary Ball Washington is, and that's wonderful. Um, she's ordinary in her her the, as some ordinary elite white woman, right? This is a woman who is born into a white slaveholding family that helped rule Virginia. Her descendants will continue to help rule Virginia. This is a woman um, of privilege, right? In spite of many losses and many sufferings, um, she still gets to enjoy privileges that lots of other women, black or white, in in Virginia and elsewhere did not get to enjoy. Um, She's a faithful, devout Christian, And I do think we need to spend more time looking at the centrality of religion in women's lives in the 18th century. I don't think that gets enough attention. And so that's one good way Mary Ball Washington illuminates um, more about the 18th century women for us. 
But while she's this devout, uh, faithful Christian, she is convinced um, in her right to own and control people, um, that she has a right to, to be in control of these other people, and she has a right to own them, even though she is this devout Christian. And so I think she gets at some of the paradoxes of the 18th century for us in that way. Um, her sufferings are sad, but they're also ordinary. Lots of women lost parents. Um, lots of women lost their husbands. Um, but she's unusual in the fact that she doesn't remarry. That is unusual in the 18th century. A lot of women because of how hard life is, what Craig was just talking about, um, did not make the choice to go it alone, even though there are really good reasons to choose to go it alone. So she's extraordinary in that. Um, she also, I think, demonstrates to us the limitations that women had. Here is a woman, uh, a single woman after her husband dies, who controls a large plantation, owns a number of people, pays a lot of taxes, and yet she does not have the political power, the social power that a man would have in the 18th century. So I think she also helps illuminate the limitations of women's lives. On the other hand, um, when you when you read Martha's book or Craig's book, you see that this is a, a, a an elite woman who understood she needed to learn what all young ladies needed to learn, um, how to ride, how to read, how to write, to attract a, a wealthy husband. And she did. Um, you know, Augustine Washington was quite a catch. And so she, she's kind of usual in that sense, too. Um, I also think she shows some of the choices women made. I think people who read about Mary Ball Washington will be surprised at that independence, will be surprised that she chose to not remarry, um, that she chose to kind of control the legacy of her children to protect that so she could pass it on to them. Um, she shows the importance of motherhood, what we were mentioning before. Uh, she becomes known as the mother, right? Um, so she really emphasizes that too. But I also think she shows us how complicated and complex women's lives are. Um, she's been simplified to the mother of George Washington. Uh, this is what I was saying earlier. And she's she's a much more complex figure than that. And she, she brings to me more questions, too, about the 18th century. She makes me think, you know, how would she have characterized herself? How would Mary Ball Washington characterize herself? We can characterize her as much as we want but how would she have done that? Um, what did motherhood mean to her? Um, we can kind of guess at what it might've meant, but I would like to know what, you know, and what mattered most to her. Maybe it wasn't being George Washington's mother that mattered most to her. So she is illuminating and gives us lots of answers for women's lives in the 18th century. But I also think she leaves us with some questions too, simply because the evidence isn't there and we just, you know, don't always know what, what these women were thinking. And I know you said there are good questions out there. So I'll leave it at that. And, and we can hear what the people are thinking. Great. Thank you so much. So yeah, um, thank you, everyone. Such good questions. I can't read them fast enough. Um, so here's one. I'm going to, I'm going to toss this one to Craig first. Um, because I, I, yeah, okay. There, there are so many good questions here. So Craig, I know this is something I know you address. Someone asked here, now I'm not going to be able to find it because I'm scrolling on the thing, scrolling here. All right. I won't attribute these questions, everyone. Um, you'll just, the person who asked this will just know that I'm, um, this is your question. Um, someone has asked about her feelings about the American revolution. So she is born as a British subject. 
you know, she lives a lot longer than George Washington does as a subject of Britain. What were her feelings about the American Revolution? Do we have any hints about that? There, uh, yeah, I addressed that in the book, and I know Mar uh, Martha does too. Um, there are hints that she was a Tory sympathizer, but nothing really out now to say yes, she was. But she had to be very, very conflicted. She grew up a subject, a British subject. She grew up in the divine right of King George II and King George III. She attended the Anglican Church, the State Church of England. And she read English literature. She, she read English literature. She followed English fashion. She dressed in English fashion in every way from childhood up until 1776. She's, she's a British subject. And I, and I was thinking, too, is, is that uh, trying to immerse myself again in that time period is that, is that what, was, what would it be like to, to say to an individual, Everything you've learned for the first 50 some odd years of your life is wrong. Kate, you are, you are, uh, you, you don't have a king. You're not a British subject. Um, you, you don't have to do this. You don't have to go to the state church. Um, is that you, we have a different a new government. We have a new attitude. And for somebody to make that lifestyle change, that psychological and and and, uh, and and personal, uh, uh, you know, the French have a word it's called desuka, which is to rip it out by the roots. Uh, it is to, to rip somebody out by the roots of what their what their culture has been. It had to have been very very difficult for her. But there's no but there's no evidence that she uh, she supported Georgie. There's no evidence that she darned socks, you know, for the for the colonial troops. Uh, there was a, a reference to French troops who were going through Fredericksburg at the time, and, and, and several French troops, or at least one of them, made reference to uh, to uh, her being a, 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 a Tory sympathizer. But again, that was it was very very thin, uh, and 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 so it is really is that she was probably fairly agnostic about the whole thing, and but she did you know there's one other thing too, uh, Karen, is that. There was, uh, and I think Martha talked about this too. There was a time where she was working in her garden, and a horseman comes up with a message breathlessly, and to, to tell her that uh, George has won an important battle, and she is very kind of dismissive and says, "Well, that's what he's supposed to do." Uh, but there was no joy at, at, at her son's success or the success of the American Revolution against the British Empire, nothing like that uh, whatsoever. So it, it, that I, I think that I think that. I don't think she she thought about it that deeply. You know, there's no nothing in her letters, nothing in any biographies, nothing that suggests that she really um, took a position one way or the other. Right. And and I guess to be fair, um, you know, even if we go by John Adams's old um, uh, quantification of support for the revolution, maybe one third of people were ardent patriots, one third were ardent Tories, and one third were, you know, sort of. We'll see how we'll see how things go. We would expect the mother of George Washington to be an ardent patriot, but you know, to be fair, you know, she lived her life as a British subject, so uh, so you know, maybe not. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, his, historians will tell you is, is that maybe more than a third of American. Of of Americans were loyal to the to the British crown. Right. George uh, Benjamin Franklin's own son was imprisoned as a Tory spy. 
Well, he was a royal governor. William Franklin, he was the royal governor of New Jersey. He had to be a Tory. (laughs) King gave him a good job. (laughs) Um, Okay, so we've got um, three, at least three people of our two dozen questions have asked um, about how what Mary thought about Martha. So I want to ask you, Martha, (laughs) if you have something uh, to tell us about what Mary Ball Washington thought about her daughter-in-law, Martha Dandridge Custis Washington. Well, it's complicated. And I think at Mount Vernon, they think that they didn't get along at all. Mm. And that that Mary, Mary and Martha really didn't like each other. They were both very powerful women in their own ways. Mm. I think... Mary was pleased that George married Martha and um, that if there was discomfort, it was probably on Martha and George's side. Because Mm. Mary, one of the things we haven't talked about is the class issue. Mary really grew up um, much less elite than the circles her son Mm. ended up traveling in. And she wasn't an illiterate rustic, but nor was she... She wasn't at that very pinnacle. She's elite, but she's not in the super elite. Right. Yeah. She's well-connected. She yeah. yeah. Right. She wasn't yeah. polished. She yeah. didn't make conversation necessarily to be amusing and charming. She had mm-hmm. things to say. She was a very utilitarian yeah. kind of person, I imagine. And I think that she represented many values that Martha had trouble with, like frugality, for example, mm-hmm. Martha was, you know, very lavish, and so was George. They just spent money and went into debt up to their eyeballs before mm. the revolution. Mm. Um, Mary, although she asked for little bits of money from George now and again, did not do that yeah. and did not dress up and did not yeah. worship the high yeah. life. So I think, I think there was a real clash of values, and I think Martha really didn't enjoy whatever remaining control Mary had over her son. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, it's it's interesting too. They're they're different generations too, and that gen, those generations really matter in that yes. period in 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 Virginia. Okay, so um, so here's um, here's a question. Um, do we know if she had? Someone asks. A bunch of people have asked questions about why she didn't remarry, and I think we've talked about that a bit. But do we know anything about anyone about her ever considering remarriage? People have asked questions about, you know, did she have any other suitors, or was she ever interested in anyone? Do we know anything about that, Craig? What do you think? Came across no evidence of any uh, suitors uh, whatsoever. I, I agree with Martha. Is that I think that she didn't she didn't uh, uh, seek another man after uh, Lawrence, but because what she'd have to give up, but also it may be is is that you know she may have uh, it, there is kind of threadbare evidence that she did have a, a prickly reputation there in Fredericksburg, and it may be is that Sooners didn't seek her either. What whatever it was is that after Lawrence she mm. didn't remarried. Yeah, um, Charlene, can, I'm sorry, no, go ahead, Martha. Yes, there was some discussion of a doctor who may or may not he visited a lot, but he also had professional reasons to do that. So <laughs> it's unclear. I think this is something that Douglas Southall Freeman suggests in, in mm. that massive work. Um, yeah. But nobody knows. Nobody actually knows. Um, Charlene, I wonder, someone asked a question about, um, about uh, women as um, slaveholders and what is the dynamic there? 
um, when some when a man is um, enslaving people, he um, has a certain level of authority. What is the situation of women? Um, the question is actually about would she have had to be harsher or tougher or something? I think we actually have some pretty recent scholarship on exactly this question about white women as slaveholders, um, which is pretty powerful. Yeah, right. And it, it, the recent scholarship opens up a picture of slaveholding women that I think really goes against what kind of the 19th century gone with the wind sense of slaveholding women were. I mean, it's increasingly clear that slaveholding white women were more violent often, um, not in terms of whipping, but kind of personal one-on-one violence, um, you know, using an implement or just clunking somebody on the head um, stabbing them with a sewing needle, something that's always at hand, um, using a kitchen implement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't, you know, we probably don't know a lot about how Mary Ball Washington was as a slave mistress, but we know enough about other Virginia slaveholding women to know mm-hmm. that violence was a regular day-to-day occurrence in these households um, because women didn't have as much of authority. Um, They also have a harder time interacting with overseers and and keeping authority over overseers. And that makes for a more frustrating, tense, more violent environment. Yeah, okay, thank you, that's helpful. Um, So uh, I, I have another question here, which I just love. This is directly for you, Martha. This is, this goes straight to our historian's happy heart. Um, This is a question (laughs) about documents. And the question for you is, are you aware if Mary Ball Washington's papers will be included in the Washington Family Papers Project, which the the George Washington Papers Project um, at UVA and with support from Mount Vernon um, is publishing? I'm I'm not aware of that. I didn't. Her papers are Mm. so are so few. It's just Mm. it's just heartbreaking. Um, I think. When Martha went through papers and got rid and burned of an awful lot of stuff after George's death, I wouldn't be surprised that a great many of the notes that, that Mary had written went with that. Um, yeah. So what's left, I think, are five or six letters. Um, there are a couple yeah. at Mount Vernon. There's one at the, um, at the Morgan Library mm-hmm. in New York. Um, I'm, I don't know what's going to happen other than that, to them, but they're, they're, to speak of Mary's papers is just a beautiful, a beautiful dream. Yes. <laughs> well, there's another wonderful question here, which I was going to ask both you and Craig, but I think we've lost Craig's connection. I know we were having, having a little bit of challenge with that, but I was going to ask both of you because someone also asks, do you think there's an, a mysterious cache of papers out there somewhere? <laughs> like we all dream about that, right? Do you think there's a, do you think there's a cache of papers somewhere? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> maybe Craig's maybe Craig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would, it would be amazing. Craig, we were just getting to this, this my favorite um, line of question here, which is about whether there are more papers to be found. The question of, is there a cache of Mary Ball Washington papers yet to be found? No, you don't think so? Oh, I think Craig is muted still, guys. Yeah. Okay. I can't, I think you're muted still. Uh, Jeanette, can you unmute him or is he, he's got a, he's got a mute there. I want to give him a chance to answer this. He says he can't unmute. Um, so Craig, I think you have to hit your unmute button because Jeanette can't do it for you. 
Can you hit unmute on yours, on your phone? Maybe. All right, no, this is sad because this is such a great question. Maybe you can, you know, give us some hand gestures there because <laughs> there we go. Now I can hear you. Great. Smoke signal. I'll do smoke signal. All right, now we can hear you. So do you think there's a cache of papers out there waiting to be found? Um, well, I, we all know that, uh, that uh, Martha destroyed her uh, letters, or at least that was the story that, uh, mm. that George uh, wrote her. I think that uh, I think that scholarship is is always available. You know, it's remarkable the things you found up in Union College up in New York a couple of years ago. Somebody was going through the uh, library and they pulled down a, a, a book and they found a lock of hair of George Washington's. And it's just astonishing the amount of scholarship that that is still unfound out there that you discover. Yeah. You know, when I was working on my book on December 1941. Uh, we did a lot of research, obviously, at Hyde Park at the FBI library. And my son, who was my principal researcher, was going through declassified documents from, uh, from World War II. And he found a, uh, a memo that had been from the Office of Naval Intelligence that was marked uh, top secret. It was to the President of the United States and to his senior staff at the White House. Uh, and it was, uh, it was stamped top secret and it had been declassified but in the 70s and yet nobody had ever found it but we came across it and in it it was this number was written three days before December December 7th 1941 mm -hmm. and the office of were estimating Japanese uh, where the Japanese possible attacks would be including the Panama Canal the Philippines Guam Wake Island and something like 27 times in this memo uh, oh my gosh um, and now I'm not suggesting that there was any conspiracy. I think that's all nonsense. Yeah. But the, but this but this memo had laid around the uh, Roosevelt the Roosevelt Library for years, unclassified in the '70s, and nobody ever uh, nobody ever came across it. So I think there's always new scholarship out there to be uh, to be discovered and uh, uncovered. Yeah, I think that's great, and I think that's just so important. I think what you know what what your work shows all three of you really um, is. The power of locating more information, bringing fresh perspectives, new interpretations. I mean, that's what sometimes we talk about revisionist history as if it's a bad thing. But the truth is, as I like to say, I borrow this from my friend Ed Ayers, the great Civil War historian. We all like revisionist medicine. You know, <laughs> you get new information, new perspectives. And that's what that's what we're doing here. Right. Is scholarship brings us new information, new perspectives. We more fully understand this critical period of the American past. And, Craig, I hope you will join us in recognizing that the 18th century really is the most significant in American history. <laughs> that's where we should all focus. So I'm not even going to let you guys have the last word here. I'm just going to end right there <laughs> and say thank you all so much for joining us this evening. And thank all of you. I really appreciate all of your questions and so on. There are a few questions in here that actually I'm going to ask um, the folks at Mount Vernon uh, to give us some contact information. I'm going to email you because you've asked some really great questions and, you know, I don't want them to go unanswered. So thank you all so much. Thanks to Kevin. Thanks to Jeanette and Jim, the folks at the back end at Mount Vernon. Don't forget what Kevin said about how Mount Vernon it is open for visiting. And don't forget what I said about the important role that Mount Vernon plays in sponsoring research and scholarship. Okay? Thanks so much, everyone. Good night. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. 
Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hildebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, you may do so by making a contribution to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.